Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. This evening, uh, we are going to be uh, addressing the subject of regret. Uh, And regret is one of those things that uh, I think we all know what we're talking about uh, as soon as we say the word. Uh, But at the moment we hit the experience, I think very few of us know what to do. In that sense, regret is probably not that different uh, from the subject of grief. As soon as we say the word grief, every one of us know what we're talking about. We know the kind of moments that would trigger and elicit grief. Uh, It seems very natural that, yes, this is a time when I should be grieving. But when we face a significant loss, and then we are supposed to do grief, we feel lost, we feel disoriented, we feel unsure, we don't think anything that we're doing uh, is right. Uh, And as we get ready to go into a subject like that, I would just invite you to pray with me uh, as we ask God to walk us through um, one of the stickiest uh, and more difficult experiences that we'll face. Lord, we come to you. Um, Lord, we come with many different stories, many different experiences, many different uh, regrets. Uh, And Lord, they come from many different places in each one of us, but we pray uh, that you would use this time together, uh, that we would see uh, the hope that you offer for this experience, uh, that we would come to trust you more, that we would come to treasure what you've done for us in the gospel more, uh, that our sense of hope and purpose would be more full and rich, uh, that our freedom to pursue you and experience joy in life would be more complete. Uh, because of the time we spent uh, studying your word together. In your name we pray. Amen. It, uh, I think one of the things that is difficult for us about the subject of regret is the fact that regret always begins as an opportunity. Regret, I can't think of an instance where regret begins as something bad. Uh, It begins as something that that we're excited about. And then when that goes away, when it is lost, when it is forfeited, when when we make a choice that causes us to surrender it, there is that level of disappointment. Maybe it's the harsh words that ruined a relationship. And it's just much more than a flustered moment. It's the friendship that we lost and everything that that held out for us. You know, when we, maybe it's the regret of a parent who missed key events in the life of their child. Uh, It wasn't so much the ball game that they miss. It's the opportunity for influence. Um, Or uh, neglecting a spouse. It's not just that moment of of not listening. It's that sense of closeness. Um, You know, maybe it's the 
uh, addictive lifestyle or some other destructive choice. It, it's not just the embarrassment. It's the loss of stability, the loss of purpose, the, the opportunities uh, that were lost. Because regret uh, is never just about the moment. Uh, it's, it's this pivotal point where our life story seems to change for the worse. And oftentimes, it was thinking of it as just that moment, just getting something off my chest, just a moment when I wanted to relax, just a time when I had something more important to do than to go to the ball game. It was thinking about that moment as just one moment instead of contributing to my overall life story that made the regretful decisions uh, make so much sense to us at the, at the time. There's kind of that haunting question, uh, what could have been? Uh, and sometimes it's a matter of sin, other times it's a matter of suffering that gets in the way. Uh, you know, just to prepare you for this talk, this talk will probably err more on the side of it being uh, a sin-based struggle that got in our way. Uh, because I think when we look at the life of Moses that we're going to look at, uh, I think in his life it was more of some of the choices that he made, although we will see plenty of suffering in his life. And so if parts of what you hear, you say, okay, this is a little different from me because those elements of suffering that I hear, that was more at the foreground. That, that just means that in the instance that we're going to walk through, uh, that's where your life was different from Moses's a bit. Um, yet, but I think one of the things that often happens is when we, when we neglect to see regret uh, in the sense of a larger story, uh, when we make it just about the moment, a couple of things that begins to happen. One uh, is the guidance that we receive begins to feel a little lightweight and cliche. Okay, it may be practical. Maybe I could do these things. These opportunities still exist. But it's not satisfying. It still kind of feels like I'm on plan B of God's possibilities and you're just making lemonade out of lemons. You're just putting a smiley face on something that feels bigger than, than the, the answer that you give me. Uh, and the second thing is, is we tend to miss most of what God has been doing, uh, what He is doing, and what He wants to do. And so even as we think about redemption and missional living and that kind of thing, it just, it seems somewhat incomplete. And so what I want us to do, I want us to walk through uh, the life of Moses. Uh, we're going to start uh, at the end of his life. And I give you a little bit of a warning for how we're going to approach this, because if I don't give you this warning, it, it may be a little harder to catch where we're going. The approach that we're going to take is going to be highly narrative. We are going to walk through the story, and it is not going to feel like until at the end that we get practical. And so what I'm going to ask is that you, you give yourself to the story of Moses. Uh, you, you live it with Him in the same way that you want someone to listen to you as you are telling your story of regret. I'm going to ask that you listen to the story of Moses with that degree of empathy that you have that rise and fall 
so that as we walk with Him, you can begin to see by the end as we turn that final corner uh, how this, uh, I think, will open up the experience of regret uh, for us. Uh, But we're going to start, and I'm going to use the metaphor here of watching a movie. And we're going to begin by watching the end of the movie. Uh, Because how many of us have not had the experience? Uh, You get home, you're kind of tired, you turn on the television, you're flipping through the channels, it's like, I don't know, uh, 8.53. And so you've got the last seven minutes of a movie. And you watch the end of the movie, and it just doesn't make any sense. There's someone crying over a picture in a cracked frame. And you know that person must be important. You just don't know why. There is the spinning photography of somebody staring at a tree in a field. And if your television is big enough, you kind of get dizzy as they spin around. But you don't know why they're in the field or why they're looking at the tree. Um, You know, there's two people. They're quoting some phrase that just seems to have an ironic weight to it. But you can't quite... you, uh, You can tell they said something and it's been said before. And it had a significance. You just don't know what it is. I think that's... That's the experience that we should have when we read Numbers chapter 20 pulled away from the rest of Moses' life. Uh, And so I want us to start uh, with this passage. It starts off, it says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So again, what we get from this much uh, is that a lot of people are gathered. And this is Moses' sister. Uh, Moses' sister has just died. Somebody who's been with him for a long time. So this is a time of mourning for Moses. We keep reading. There was, there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said... Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the entire assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And so, Moses' sister has just died. Uh, The people are in a hard place. They gather together and they are grumbling and giving it to Moses pretty fiercely. Uh, And we'll find that that this is their regular habit. So we continue. And then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock. Before their, eyes, before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Seems to be really worried about the cows. Um, and Moses took the staff from the presence of the Lord as he commanded him. And we see Moses started pretty good. You know, he, he, he gets his accountability partner. These people are getting on my nerves. I don't need to deal with this on my own. I'm going to get my accountability partner. We're going to go. We're going to pray. We're not just going to like say, God, will you shut these people up? We're actually going to listen to what God says. Uh, we're going to get a game plan. We're going to set out 
to obey that plan. At this point, Moses is a very sympathetic figure, as he should be. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water from this rock for you? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck uh, the rock with his staff twice. Water came out of the rock abundantly. The congregation drank and their livestock. Got to take care of the cows. Um, you know, more or less, Moses did what he was supposed to do. Uh, he ad-libbed a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm from Kentucky. We'd say he pitched a fit. Uh, but he didn't cuss. I, I mean, we got to feel like he did an okay job at this point. Um, and God takes care of the people. I mean, he did a good enough job that water came from the rock. Um, and we continue. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, and again, very specifically what they did not believe, to uphold me as holy. Again, they believed enough to pray, they believed enough to do what he said, but not to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them showed himself holy. This is where we just say, what? Wow. That's rough. That's fierce. I mean, he banged a rock with a stick and he scolded some people with some decently nice words for their circumstances. And now you're going to tell him he doesn't get to finish. He doesn't get to take them in. This seems so unfair. This, this is a moment for regret. Um, and we... We watch the last seven minutes of the movie. And we go, I don't get it. This seems weird. This seems off. And so the credits are rolling and we're staring at one another on the couch asking what just happened. So what I want us to do is I want us to go back through and watch the movie over from the beginning. Uh, we're going to do this relatively quickly. I give you the major passages. Uh, I may quote a few places, but... Uh, feel free to take notes if you want, but we're going to move pretty quickly through this part. So we pick up the movie in Exodus 1, and we see that Moses' family took great risk to protect a beloved and attractive son. Uh, Moses grew up, and there was an edict from Pharaoh to kill every firstborn son uh, of the children of Israel. And so Moses' life begins as an act of defiance. Um, and you have to know that impacted his sense of identity. Now you may be asking me, why, why, do we take, why do we go through it this way? Well, you know, part of the reason is, I want us to see Moses as a real person. I don't think we often read the Bible as if the people in the Bible were real people. Uh, we often view them as superheroes, as myths, as legends. But I want us to see how he grew up. What were the influential events? Who were the influential people? I want us to see his life unfolding without knowing the end. 
or at least without giving weight to the end, like, ah, we know everything was happily ever after. I want us to read it as he lived it. Partly because I think that's fair to Moses. Partly because I think that's fair to the text. But mainly because that's how we walk with God. We walk with God that way. So again, we see how he started, that his life began as an act of defiance. And this had to impact his sense of identity. And then in Exodus 2, God allows his mother to raise Moses in Pharaoh's house. So again, it gets to be about three months old. They can't hide this kid because he's crying a lot. Uh, They put him in a basket. They float him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. She has compassion on him. And we see uh, that before Moses could even speak his first words, his life went from extreme persecution to extreme privilege in a way that there just had to be a radical culture shock. And so all the stories that he was told growing up about who his people was and what his life was really like were incredibly disconnected. And so you you had to begin to think, I mean, I can only imagine that Moses begins to think, God set me apart for a purpose. There has to be a reason for this. I don't have any male friends to play with who are my age. I am the only one in my generation uh, who is male. Why is this? We... We have to kind of skip up to the book of Acts. But one of the things that we pick up in the book of Acts is that Moses mastered the Egyptian education system. It says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. Moses was a special kid. It wasn't just his mama who thought he was cute. Um, He made friends. He gained a reputation. He was mighty in word and deed. He was captain of the debate team and the football team. He was a nerd and he could beat you up if you had a problem with it. Uh, That was Moses. And that's going to become very ironic later. So just stash that away. Exodus 2. Moses kills a man. He, He grew up. There was a point. He left the palace. He went out to see his people. He had to go out to see his people. And one of the Egyptians was beating one of his people. And he lost it. And he killed him. Uh, And we we see in this that conflict of identity. You know, because he had to go out to see his people. And when he did, what he saw created a rage. And this is the first time we see Moses' anger. Uh, That outburst that happened beating the rock and skull. This is the first time we see Moses' anger. And so we continue in Exodus 2. Moses runs for his life. He marries, has children, and herds sheep in the desert. At this point, life settles down. The story stabilizes. In Exodus 2.21, one of the things that we see is, is a startling phrase that's easy to pass over. It says, Moses was content. 
we get the sense that to this point in his life, Moses had not been content. He was restless. He was trying to figure out why all of this was happening. Why have I been set apart? Why are my people over there? Why am I in privilege? Why is this going? And again, it, it had to feel a little bit like everything was crashing. This couldn't quite feel like it lived up to what he thought his life was going to be about. But he had a wife. He had some kids. He had a couple of boys. Life was content. He learned a skill. Again, this would be significant. He learned how to herd sheep in the desert. And then, then we hit Exodus 3. Uh, and God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. And for us, this is a really cool story because, you know, it's, I mean, you can make movies like The Prince of Egypt about this, and this is the great little intro scene. But this was God interrupting Moses' newfound settledness. And life has been hard and unsettled, and I made this unbelievable mistake, and I got banished, and I was on the run for my life, and I probably let them down, but hey, I've, I've got somebody that I love, and we've got a good life, and we're able to take care of ourselves. And God comes in, and he disrupts that again. And one of the things that God says is, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Well, you know Moses had to wonder, where is God? Do you hear the cries of your people when they're getting beaten with whips? I did something, you didn't. Well, the first thing God says is, surely I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard the cries of my people. And he says, I'll send you to Pharaoh. Now, we hear Pharaoh, and we think king, you know, like the big kahuna. Uh, Moses probably didn't think king. He thought adopted grandfather. He thought the persecutor of my people, the man who signed my most wanted poster. He didn't think of Pharaoh the way that we did. And in the midst of this, uh, Moses... He asked, who am I, God? Who am I that you would use me to do this? And it's at this point where it's, it's one of those moments I read Scripture and I'm just so glad I'm not God. Uh, and I think you'll be glad that I'm not God because I read that and I just want to go, who else, Moses? Just, let's, let's think about this for a moment. Moses, how many, people, how many Jews do you know who can walk up to the door of the Capitol and talk to the people because they went to school with them. You know anybody else? Do you know anybody else who can walk in to the throne room of Pharaoh? Do you know anybody else who knows the passwords? Anybody? Ferris, Bueller, anybody? Moses. I don't know if you've noticed, but between Egypt and the Promised Land, there's like a big desert. And um, for like generations, all these people have done is made bricks. So of all of those Jews that we got to get from here to there, you know any of them that might have skills like moving large masses of dumb animals through dry, weary lands and finding water? And getting, You know anybody? Because if you do, I'm taking applications. I could have been a really cynical, lay the smack down kind of deity for Moses. But that wasn't how God answered. Um, God says it's not about who you are, but who is with you. Because 
God's first answer when Moses says, who am I, is I will be with you. Such, such a tender answer at that moment where there is a lot of fear and a lot going. God doesn't rebuke him at that point. He says, I'll be with you. And in his next answer, Moses says, who, who am I going to say you are? And Moses is the first to be on a first name basis with God. I am that I am. Yahweh. You thought it was cool when you got to call Pharaoh by his first name. I will now give you the privilege of knowing my name. Let's go. Uh, and, and, and Moses, you know, in, in that interaction, uh, God gives Moses several signs. And one of those is that staff that showed up in Numbers 20. He said, put it down. It becomes a snake. And Moses jumps back and screams like a little girl. Uh, that's ad lib on my part. Um, but then he picks it up by the tail, which is a really dumb thing to do if you've ever been a country boy and know how to pick up a snake. You pick it up by the back of the neck so it can't bite you. But he picks it up by the tail and it becomes a staff again. And we see that when Moses was banging that staff against the rock, that was a pretty precious thing that is going to stay in the narrative all the way through. This is... This is like if you had the bat that Reggie Jackson used to hit three home runs in the World Series and your kid is out there hitting rocks with it in the driveway. Uh, if you've seen the movie Sandlot, this is like the Babe Ruth autographed baseball that the little kid goes with and he takes to his friends and they start playing and they hit it over above the neighbor's yard with a big nasty dog who chews on it. That staff that was being beaten in a careless, casual manner was something sacred. And holy. Yet, now Moses begins to offer excuses. And basically he says, I don't, I'm not eloquent. I don't talk good. And often we assume this means that Moses had a stuttering problem. I think, I'm convinced there's a different answer to that. When Moses was younger, he was mighty in word and deed. He's now spent 40 years with sheep. Which means he's probably not been using a very elaborate vocabulary. And he hasn't been refining his rhetorical skills. I think what he's saying is, God, I used to could talk good. I used to could hold my own. I could get in there. I, I could have really, I might have could have done this. If it had been a different season in my life if things hadn't gone the way that they did. But you know what happened that got me banished out of here with these dumb sheep. And, and I think what we see is that God doesn't need us at our best. He needs us at our most available. And oftentimes in our battle with regret, that's part of the struggle. It's whatever it is that we regret, we feel like it's made it second best. Um... And by the time we get to Numbers 20, we see Moses speaking with power and uninhibited again. And it wasn't nearly as powerful and as effective and holy and good as this more humble Moses that we see here in Exodus 4. And we continue in Exodus 4. Moses takes his wife and children to Egypt to follow God's plan. And now Moses has to show the same kind of risk 
that his parents showed. It's one thing to be the infant who, who my life is this act of rebellion before I was really making any choices. It's another thing to look into the eyes of my wife and these two young men who look an awful lot like me and say, we're going back and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be safe. Um, and so with the risk, we see a great act of faith. And we, and again, I can only imagine, I'm, hopefully this is a sanctified imagination, Moses has to feel like he's on the right track again. This is more like what you set me apart for. This, this feels like what I talked about with my mama when we were, when we were in Pharaoh's cathedral. And, and she told me you were going to do something great. Um, then we get, we get to the next chapter. And Moses is rejected by Pharaoh. And again, I have to imagine that Moses panicked. And you think about it. We had burning bush. We had all this good stuff. And we had plenty of time to pass by before we get to Pharaoh's door. And, and, you know, Moses says, hey, God said these people need to go. And Moses said, or Pharaoh said, I don't even know who you're talking about. And, and we let a, we've all had mountaintop experiences where things feel like it's all better and it's going to go well and something goes wrong. And we melt. More than melt, we quake. And we begin to think, did I get it wrong? Um, and and after, after that happens, Exodus 6, God encourages Moses and the people grumble. And this is a major theme uh, that God encourages and the people grumble. I mean, how many times you're going to get tired of me saying the people grumbled as we go through this story so begin to think like parent with whiny kids okay parent with whiny kids initially we're going to do a really good job with this we're going to be parent of the year we know we need to be patient and then by like eleven thirty at night we've had it i mean it's that which happens in a single evening over years and we get to exodus 7 through 12 and there's the 10 plagues and that staff that, that Moses was originally holding, it plays a major role in all of these miracles. Moses is growing increasingly bold as he's engaged in this powerful political and spiritual contest. Um, you know, systematically, Moses is just picking off deity after deity after deity in the Egyptian system. Because when you look at those miracles, we just think they're weird. It's like gnats and frogs and the river turning to blood and it just why what's i mean i know they're an agricultural society i mean maybe that it each of those plagues was picking off one of the egyptians deity and saying not a god not a god not a god as if moses were standing up and saying there is one true god and that there's just I've got to imagine that this Moses is different from, from the Moses of Exodus 4 who's saying, I don't talk good. He's starting to get some of that, that fervor back. And then we hit Exodus 13 and 14. Uh, God delivers Israel. 
parts the Red Sea, provides plunder, and destroys the entire Egyptian army. And really, this is the first time in a long time that there's a good series of events. There's finally some relief. It has been so hard. Ever since the burning bush, it has been hard. There has not been more than one step forward without something major going wrong. This sense of risk, and it it finally looks like it's turning a corner. We hit Exodus 15 and 16. The people grumble, and God provides manna. If you read chapter 15, it is three days after the Red Sea, and the people are grumbling. Three days! That's how much a major miracle like the Passover followed by the Red Sea gets you with these people. Exodus 16, it's three weeks later. God provided manna. Miracle bread from heaven. And that buys you three weeks. As you're on the way to the promised land. Exodus 17. The people grumble again. 15, 16, 17, grumble, grumble, grumble. And this time God provides water from a rock. And we begin to see that that miracle in Numbers 20, it was the sequel. Sequel's never as good as the original. Um, Been there, done that, had this instruction. I know, stand, talk to the rock, water comes out, everybody shuts up, it's kind of a relief. Uh, the quiet, peace and quiet is as nice to me as the water is to them. Um, got this. We know what we're doing. Um, and I have to imagine the familiarity with what was going on had to contribute with the casualness of Moses in the way that he carried out God's instructions in Numbers 20. And I think there's a warning in that for us. Because most of the Christian life is not new obedience. Yeah, I think the Christian life has very aptly been described as a long obedience in the same direction. And so, in what Moses faces here in just the second encounter of the same miracle, uh, we, I think we face as we rely on God in the same circumstances for the same things on a day-in, day-out basis. Exodus 18. Moses is administratively overwhelmed because he's trying to do everything and gets delegation advice from his father-in-law. And what we see is that there's a new theme that hits the story that's going to continue on here. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, says, Moses, you're trying to do this all on your own. It's not good. You're going to wear yourself out. you got people waiting all day long just to hear from you. You can't do that. And Moses, you know, we see Moses through this. He's humble, he's meek. But when somebody will overwork and let things over-rely on them like that, that is most often rooted in fear. Either fear, this just wanting to be irreplaceable, not wanting that anybody else could do my job, because if I could, I could be replaced, or pride, really believing that I'm irreplaceable and I'm the only one who could do this. So Jethro says, look, you've got to get some leaders, you know, some over tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands and kind of let stuff move up to you. But whether it's fear or pride, those are very common underpinnings of anger. 
So we move from Exodus 18 to Exodus 20. We get the Ten Commandments. And that's a pretty cool scene. I mean, you can make a nice Charlton Heston movie about something like that. It, and Moses begins to gain a lot of authority as he represents God to the people. Because the people, you know, Moses is up on the mountain. It's a fiery scene. And, and they say, Moses, you, you talk to God for us and just come down and tell us what he says because it's scary. And, and Moses does. And, and later on, the people are going to very much resent Moses for the very thing that they ask him to do. And we hit Exodus 25 to 31. Moses receives instructions regarding the tabernacle. Things are going well again. We got a building project. Uh, you know, this is nice. Um, if you've ever been in a building project, you know things are going bad after that. Um, we hit Exodus 32. Moses has to rebuke Aaron for making a golden calf. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain again for some time with God. He comes down. Uh, actually, God tells Moses, you've got to go down and take care of it because the people are being stupid. And Moses is like, really? He comes down, and there's, they're all worshiping this golden calf, and they're like, he says, where did that come from? They're like, we don't know. It just happened. Um, you know, again, they're like kids. And Aaron was in on it. His number two guy. And Moses gets very bold. He calls the Levites to himself and they slay a whole bunch of them. And he grinds that calf up into powder, pours it, pours it into water and says, drink it. And when your two guy undermines things like that, as much as we see Aaron in the story, I have to imagine there's a little bit of consolidation of power. There's a little bit of Moses feeling alone. I turned my back for a few minutes to go spend a little bit of time with God. And this is what happens. And we go from there uh, to Numbers 12. And here both Aaron and Miriam get jealous of Moses' leadership. And what they say sounds remarkably like what Jethro said, uh, it is the kind of thing that we will uh, continue to hear. They say, has the Lord indeed spoken only to Moses? Are you the only one that gets to be his mouthpiece? You're the only one that has to tell this to everybody? And they get very low. Uh, if you look uh, at verse 1, uh, they started to attack his wife because of um, her race. For he had married a Cushite woman. I mean, you, we're starting to get nasty. When you start to attack his wife for her race, this is his sister and his number two man who have gone with him through the entire way. And again, the text is clear to commend Moses here for being meek. But Miriam is struck down with leprosy. Uh, for seven days she has to go outside the camp. And again, I can, I can only imagine that there is more of a consolidation of what's going on with the power. Moses, he's meek, but he's alone. And not for reasons that we're going to 
beat up on Moses about, but he's alone. Number 16, Moses faces the rebellion of Korah. Again, the people get upset and they're like, why have you done this to us? Why are you the only one that gets to talk to God? They're bringing that same complaint again. And at this point, 14,700 people die at the hand of God in a plague. And so Moses sees God's anger against the people who are grumbling. God is clearly on his team. It is me and you, God, against these numbskulls. And if you remember that phrase in Numbers 20, I tried to read it and draw our attention to it, when the people are saying, ah, that we had died with our brothers. What they're saying is that rebellion of Korah, we wish we'd went down with the coup. I mean, those were biting words that he went with Aaron to pray about before he comes up and he lets the people have it. And so then we come to Numbers 20. And I think a whole lot of the story begins to make much more sense in terms of how the movie ended. Moses' response makes more sense. And, and so we come back to the end. And we try to make sense of the end of the movie. And I want to give us four points here. Uh, the first two are more of what I would call regret prevention. Uh, the latter two are more regret restoring. Uh, restoring, creating a new story around the experience of regret. And so the first piece here under regret prevention, Moses grew comfortable, casual, and finally aggressive with the things that he used to hold with humility, fear, and integrity. Yet, I mean, when he was holding the staff and he was leading God's people and he planted it in the ocean or planted it in the Red Sea and the Red Sea divides, it, he held it differently than when he was beating the rock. And so I think one of the things for us just to ask is what has become that way for us? Is it our Bible? Is it something that, that we used to hold with a sense of reverence? realizing that it was the very word of God to us and the sacred privilege it was to get to read it. Um, maybe it's our marriage or our children. Relationships that are just so day-to-day, -day, so casual, so mundane, that we, we don't treat them the way that we ought to. Maybe it's a job or a ministry role uh, that as we are in it, we, we begin to get frustrated. We begin to get casual. We begin to feel taken for granted. And it just changes the way that we, we hold those opportunities. Maybe it's our own body and what it means to be made in the image of God, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and just whatever that was, what we begin to realize is that familiarity leads to laziness. We begin to neglect the more common something becomes. And again, I think this is where the importance of having people in our life who know us well, who would say, are you taking care of this? Um, you know, people who will say to me, Brad, you don't look good. 
not as an insult. Just say, you look tired. Are you getting rest? Are you taking care of yourself? And I think part of what we saw in the life of Moses that makes him such a sympathetic figure is many of the events was making him more and more isolated. Um, Another piece. Moses made the moment about himself. Uh, Anger has a propensity to be highly self-centered and has a gravity that attracts all similar negative memories. And I don't think this is true of just anger. But I think all emotions have this kind of gravity. I mean, think about it. Just your experience for a moment. When you are angry, can you not think of everything that anybody has ever done against you that was a slight or wrong? And it is just, it is sucked into your mind. When you're anxious, can you not think of any circumstance that could go wrong that would be something to be fearful of that kind of what if, what if, what if, what if, and I can pop off what if incredibly well. When you're depressed, can you not think of every circumstance that just makes this hopeless? That just, why there is no reason to even try or get out of bed. Whatever that dominating emotion is that tends to make all of life about me, it creates this blurring that makes it very easy for us to give into the kinds of choices that lead to regret. And I think we see how easy that leads us into the third piece here. Moses forgot that he was there to lead a people for God. The people would not stand a chance in the idol-infested promised land if they interpreted this moment as if they failed Moses. Again, the parallel that I would draw is with our kids. It is so easy when my kids do the knuckle-headed stuff that kids are so good at doing. For me to get upset in such a way that they think the big problem is with me. We've upset Papa. Why is Papa upset? What do we need to do to make Papa happy? And I become the reference point for everything that they're perceiving. If the children of Israel went into the promised land going, we grumbled one too many times and Moses lost it. Gotta keep Moses happy. We kind of learned what button not to push. You don't talk about his wife, especially after his sister died. Duh. Why didn't we think of that? They would go into the promised land utterly ill prepared for the journey that was in front of them. But one of the things that we see that's very encouraging is that God was accomplishing his purpose in Moses' life, both through Moses' successes. And his failures. When Moses was doing good in school as a young kid. When he raised a family. uh, When he was learning to be a shepherd. When he had the courage to stand up to Pharaoh. God used all of those things. But also when Moses killed a man. When he feared when Pharaoh resisted him. And when he went on a rant. Uh, in front of the people. God used all of those 
things as well. There was nothing that Moses did that put Moses on God's plan B for his life. And I think one of the things that, that is easy to miss that lets us know that Moses got this. Who wrote the Pentateuch? It was Moses. Moses was able to write the first five books of the Old Testament and he wrote them as a hope-filled narrative. It's one of the things that I love most about the Lord of the Rings, if we can draw a parallel. In the Lord of the Rings, you have this incredibly dark story. And you have Frodo uh, and Bilbo before him, and they are telling their story in the Red Book. And no matter, and even at the darkest moments, you have these great conversations between Frodo and Sam, where they're talking about, do you think anybody will ever uh, tell the tales of our journey to their kids? And they'll say, tell me more about Frodo's uh, dad. I really like to hear about him. And Frodo says, no. You know, what they'll say is, tell me more about Sam. He, he always knew just what to say. Frodo wouldn't have gotten very far without Sam. And even in this dark story, it, you have a sense that the, the authors know the end, and it's a hopeful end. Moses is telling us this story, and he tells it as one of God's faithfulness. We don't read this as a bitter narrative as somebody who was stuck up on the mountain who I got left in time out and everybody else got to go play a recess. Um, it, um, we see that Moses led God's people as much in how he accepted God's punishment and how he dispersed God's law. Because, again, there's everything in the text that Moses would say. I have been removed from my position and you will follow Joshua into the land. Because I did not honor God as holy. And it is important that as you go, that you reverence God as holy and you do everything that he says as you go into this land. Um, because the people went. And they went with faith. Uh, and as much as they rebelled against Moses, they loved him and they wouldn't have done that if their leader had turned bitter. There's no way that they would have followed Joshua the way that they did unless that baton was passed the way that it was. Um, and fourthly, we see that Moses' life was not a failure. I mean, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, Moses gets more verses than just about anybody else. Moses' life was about much more than his story, so his failure bore consequences larger than we might feel fair. Um, but what we miss in seeing Moses' punishment is that Mo Moses' mission was complete. The people did enter the promised land. And they entered the promised land with a sense of what it meant to be the people of God. Again, imagine with me, Moses up on the mountain, and he's watching the people cross the Jordan River. Thinking, we did it. Mission accomplished. 
have to believe the words of God were well done, my good and faithful servant. I gave you a people who were slaves. And you brought them all of this way. And they go into the land now knowing what it means to be my people. They are as prepared as they could be as a fallen, broken people to do what I've laid before them. And Moses' legacy is that of a great man of faith. Because he didn't view the hardships or even the punishments as something that opted him out of God's will. In, again, from persecution to killing a man to being somebody who was valedictorian who's now herding sheep to going into Israel, I'm sorry, into Egypt and having this combat that didn't really ever go well until the very end and even then the army came and it looked bad and he, he was faithful. At no point did he say, I give up, this is over, this is too much, I've blown it too bad. He said, for where I am now, I will follow after you. I will do whatever you ask. I will go wherever you say go. I trust you. And I think it's because of that that not only is Moses get his own section in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, he gets a whole set of verses in Hebrews 3 where Jesus, when the Messiah comes, one of the titles that is given to him is the greater Moses. And we read there, he says, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And we see that our hope is not Moses, is not being like Moses, is not following the law of Moses. Our hope is the same hope that Moses had. It is in God Himself. In even though he did not know it at the time, in Jesus, that he was a type of. Because you see, just like Moses, Jesus was banished at his birth. And Jesus was great in word and deed. Jesus faced the grumbling of those that He led uh, into the promised land, into heaven. Um, but Jesus did it without anger. Uh, and we get a great degree of hope in that. Jesus fulfills the law. and doesn't just make it known. Jesus isn't the one. Jesus gives us direct access to the Father. Whereas everybody was coming to Moses constantly as if He was the only one who would get to be uh, speaking to God. Jesus provides Himself as the living water, not just from a rock. And as we see in Hebrews 12, Jesus does not chide us. He instructs us as a Father, which is so important as we face neglect. 
And so here's what I would want us to get from this examination of Moses' life. We see the story. We see the many, many, many junctures. Because of his own sin, and because of the suffering of people grumbling against him and the hardships that he's faced, where Moses could have easily said, enough, I've had it, I can't take it, it's been too hard. And at the moment that he said, too much, at that moment, he would have lived a life of regret. He would have looked back as that being the defining moment and thought, that's what broke me, that's what was too much. And it would have crushed him in regret for the rest of his days. And as we read his story, he is so sympathetic. But we see one who had a faith that says, I will trust God from here. I don't understand it. Uh, but I know there is nothing that puts me in a position that God cannot and will not use me. I will follow Him faithfully. Um, and that, that is... Uh, the belief that allows us to overcome regret. Because regret makes it sound like the story is over. As if it would have been a good story if. But Moses would never live that way. And I think it's the hope that we have in Christ that lets us see um, how, whether it be sin or suffering, we can do in the same manner. And so with that being said, uh, I think we live that out uh, independence and reliance in relationship. And the best way we express that is through prayer. Uh, and so I would invite you to pray with me. Lord, we come to you. Having faced many things, each and every one of us here, not knowing all of our stories, really only knowing my own. Knowing that there's just enough places where it would have been easy to say, enough, I can't take it. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the faith as a gift to see your hand and your goodness, that your work is not finished, that you can and will use us for your purpose and your glory, um, that we know in Christ the story ends in hope, the story ends in restoration. And so, Lord, we ask for the faith and strength and perseverance uh, to live that out in faith. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, this is the end of our time for the Equip Forum. Uh, I will hang out for a few minutes. And if you, uh, if you have any questions or want to come up and talk, uh, happy to do that if you need to go. Um, thank you for being here and spending a Tuesday night, hopefully to be equipped uh, in your own walk and uh, to care for others. Thank you.